Well, good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, again, my name is Jordan. So glad to be here. We are going to be closing out our series on the Beatitudes. We have two Beatitudes to hit this morning. A lot of work to do. I just want to quickly reset the stage that the Beatitudes are essentially the characteristics of those who have been gospelized. Those who have come to Jesus in a saving faith. This is not a list of things that we do in order to earn salvation, but it's an outpouring of our salvation. So with that in mind, Matthew 5, verse 9, will hit our first beatitude of the day here. It says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. So, I did some digging. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 298 of those have seen no war. That's recorded history. Imagine unrecorded history. Some philosophers believe that the only way that human beings on earth will ever stop being at odds with one another and at war with one another is if a threat from beyond this world comes, like an interplanetary war, and that just sounds like the plot of Avengers. And so there's, there's no doubt that there appears to be a need for peacemaking in our world when you think about war, okay? But, but that's not specifically what Jesus is talking about here. Because Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon in the history of the world, is speaking to a very ordinary group of people who have no positions of power or authority. They live underneath the authority of the Roman Empire. They have no positions of leadership, even amongst the Jewish community. And so these people are not in any kind of position to be peacemakers on such a large global scale. And so what then does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the peacemakers? Well, with the context of the text in mind, who's in front of them? This is a call for us to become peacemakers in our most intimate and personal relationships, to become peacemakers within culture and society around us. Now, fundamental to understanding this beatitude is going to be understanding what exactly a peacemaker is. And so to help us, I wanna split the word in half. So we're gonna have peace and we're gonna have maker. So let's first start with peace. This, this word peace, as it's understood in the book of Matthew, which is a particularly Jewish document, it comes from this well-known Old Testament word, shalom. Shalom. And while the concept of shalom is a very prominent one in the Old Testament, it's really a concept I think that's hard for us to understand today. It doesn't exist that often. Because shalom is not simply how we define peace. It's not simply the absence of trouble or conflict. It is that, yes, absolutely. But it's so much more. It goes beyond that. It is the wholeness and overall well-being of the individual and everyone around them. And so when, when you define peace in context of our beatitude, we must not simplify it as simply being the absence of trouble. 
That's not what Jesus is calling us to. It has to be everything that makes for the well-being and wholeness of an individual and the community around them. Shalom, in essence, is life as God intended it to be. Shalom is harmony with the earth. Harmony with one another. Harmony with ourself and ultimately harmony with God. In a shalom mindset, peace does not simply mean that the guns are silenced. No, it goes far deeper. Peace reigns when the inner causes of conflict and strife are healed and restored to how God designed them to be. Let me show you a few verses. I could show you 20. I'm just going to show you three. This is shalom, Isaiah 11. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. That's shalom, living harmoniously. Imagine that, a wolf and a sheep living harmoniously in the wilderness. Ephesians 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. That's shalom. Revelation 21, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. That sure is shalom. And, and like last week, does that not seem like an incredibly high level of integrity and purpose that God is calling us ordinary people to? It especially feels that way when we get to the second part of our word, which is makers. Be peacemakers, makers of shalom. That word is an active word that requires action. There is not an ounce of passivity in it. It bursts with calling and divine purpose for us. And so when you put it together with peace, we now have a dynamic call to action, which pursues not just the absence of conflict and trouble, but the holistic well-being of individuals and society. Like, talk about an unnatural human quality that we need help in achieving. As one commentator says, me, a maker of shalom? Lover of shalom, sure. Seeker of shalom, yeah. Keeper of shalom, sometimes. But makers? Me? In the scriptures, only God can make shalom. It is a divine reality, a holistic state that only the living God can create, and yet God calls us, the gospelized, to make this. A peacemaker is not someone who's laid back and casual and open, like, yeah, just do whatever you want, it's all good, as long as it doesn't disturb me or bother anyone else, just live and let live, man. Like, that's not a peacemaker. A peacemaker is one who views their relationships with the most honesty, integrity possible. They say exactly what is there and they own up to it. In Ezekiel 13, Ezekiel essentially rebukes a group of people who say, we have peace, everything's all good, when really it's not all good and there is no peace. 
he goes on to use an illustration of a wall that is about to fall down because it's full of cracks. And rather than fixing the cracks, they simply paint over them and hide them and cover them so they don't have to deal with them. And essentially, that's what we do in our lives when we say, it's all good, we have peace, when we try to avoid discomfort when really peace doesn't exist. In Jeremiah 6, he says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. He's saying, by not admitting what's really going on inside of ourselves, it's like having a festering, infected wound that we're just putting a band-aid over top of because we don't want to deal with what's actually happening. Does that sound like peace? A peacemaker is in line with reality. They are painfully honest about the state of their intimate relationships, about the state of their social relationships, with the relationships in the world around them and ultimately their relationship with God. They admit, though painful, mistakes. They admit when they're at odds with others. They acknowledge when others have something against them and they don't pretend that there is peace when there is no peace. Moreover, a peacemaker does not define peace as just the absence of conflict. Get that definition out of your head this morning. They define peace as complete wholeness, complete harmony with their inner well-being in their life and in the life of others. The peacemakers see the cracks in the walls. They don't paint over them. They address them. But it's hard. Because if you're anything like me, oftentimes we just want to paint over the cracks. We don't like to see those. And so maybe we just turn around. Don't look at them. Turn the noise up somewhere else. But deep down, we don't ever feel peace because we have these cracks. And and I can speak better on behalf of men because I am one. But I see this as predominantly a male sin and a male struggle. Like even in our most intimate relationships, we tend to act as if everything's okay when really it might not be. We tend to avoid the reality of getting everything out onto the table because we just want peace, how we define it. And so we'll say it's fine, and everything's okay when really it's not within us, but really we just want to go watch football in peace? Too personal? Like, peacemakers are willing to accept pain in order to have peace. What do I mean? Well, if we've hurt someone, if we've offended someone, then going to them gently and humbly is going to be a painful and difficult experience. Or if someone around you is needing a loving rebuke, you see someone you love running into the street, you're going to go out and grab them, but that's going to be a painfully difficult conversation. 
And so we have two things at work with peace. We have absolute integrity and honesty about the status of our relationships as it relates to peace. And we have the willingness to undergo painfully difficult conversations to get there. And these two beautiful things wed together and birth a third thing, which is going to be your paradox of the week. You ready? A peacemaker is a fighter. A peacemaker is a fighter. I'm not saying that all fighters are peacemakers, because most of the time fighters are just fighters. But the word maker is an active word that calls for movement. It's not a static word. There's nothing passive about it. And the scriptures speaking about this shalom of peace that God has for us says this, Ephesians 4, I therefore, this is Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or Romans 14, 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. It's active. Peace is to be pursued and fought for. Where there's hate, may we bring love. Where offense, may we bring pardon and forgiveness. Where division, may we bring unity. A peacemaker is a fighter for this. They practice gracious aggression for the kingdom of God. He's a fighter for the shalom. And that in no way, I'm in no way suggesting that you have a license to kill or to go police people. No, a peacemaker displays the qualities and characteristics of shalom, which includes living harmoniously and lovingly and gently together. James 3 describes this kind of person, verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A peacemaker understands that we're all sinners in need of grace. They don't expect perfection from anyone. Only Jesus can be perfect for us. And, and they're humble. They have their ego in check. And so how beautiful, or Jesus says blessed, is a peacemaker. They're fueled by the peace of God himself. And they're honest about their relationships and whether there really is shalom. They're willing to undergo pain to get there, not willing to sweep things under the rug and let it fester. They're aggressive. They fight for peace. This is really a beautiful type of person primarily because they're like Jesus. Our Lord Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker. 
What we see when we see Jesus' peacemaking is that there's nothing cheap or insincere about it. He was as authentic as he could possibly be. Talk about enduring pain, too. Look at Colossians 1. He says, for, for in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Or Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Jesus Christ is our peace. He is our fuel for peace. We're united to him by his death and resurrection and through the power of the Holy Spirit, his shalom flows through us and then outpours into all of our relationships. And so he becomes our peace and we are united in that together and called to live harmoniously together. And when we consider how this applies to our lives, okay, like, like the other Beatitudes, we can see how this kind of seems like an unnatural human quality that's going to take the Holy Spirit working within us to pull it off. It's going to require a radical change of heart that only God can bring to you. It demands a divine intervention of our personality. We need God's help if we're going to have shalom. And so this morning, it's a really beautiful place to begin if you're thinking right now, I'm sure for many of you, someone popped to mind right away like, yeah, I'm really at odds with this person. I don't have peace in this relationship. There really is a crack in this aspect of my life. There's really something wrong in this social relationship. And in confessing that, you're creating room for the Holy Spirit to enter inside of you and give you the strength to be honest and to risk the pain, embrace the awkwardness, and ultimately heal it and fix the cracks and lead you to shalom. The moment you think I can't is the moment Jesus says I can. We need his help in this. And let's, uh, let's look at the benefit here. So the second part of this verse Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. As always, they, whenever he says they or theirs, that is emphatic, meaning the peacemakers alone, this person alone will be called sons of God. And who calls them that? God does. And he gives the name Son of God, which is a name primarily used for Jesus. So it's as if to say that as peacemakers, you will be like Jesus. You are like Jesus. Therefore, God calls you my child. No wonder the scriptures say how blessed is this person. And so the question is then this morning, is what is the name that God has assigned to you if this is what a peacemaker is? If your character is such that 
you know, you hold grudges and, and you gossip about others and, and you push your own agenda and you're constantly malcontent and you find joy in hearing trouble of others and you're always critical, always fault-finding, always unwilling to be involved in peacemaking. If these characteristics are constant in your life, hear me, I'm not saying they don't pop up here and there, that we don't fall into them sometimes because that's called being a human being. But if these things are consistently present in your life, then we got to do some work with the Lord this morning. Ask him to transform our heart. Ask for his grace and for him to work within us. But if you loathe those things about you, that is a sign of grace. That is creating space for the Holy Spirit to come work inside of you. How beautiful is the person that is honest about their relationships, that doesn't settle for a fake peace, that doesn't say peace when there is no peace, that doesn't paint over the cracks, who's willing to risk the pain and awkwardness who is a fighter for peace, but does so gently and lovingly like our, like our Father Jesus before us. They are the children of God. Okay, one more beatitude here. Let's go to verse 10. Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You'll notice a shift in the Beatitudes here. The first seven were characteristics and like attributes of things we do. This is something that happens to us. You'll also notice that Jesus repeats this one twice. Why does he say it twice? Is it because he knows we're not going to like what we hear here? Or maybe it's because this is the one that Jesus himself felt the most. Also, this is really important. We got to note the reasoning for this persecution. Why are they persecuted? Why are the gospelized persecuted? He says, it's for righteousness sake. He says, it's on my account. In other words, Jesus is saying, you will be persecuted because of me. That's an important distinction here. And so what that does not mean is Jesus is not blessing obnoxious, culturally insensitive, confrontational Christianity that results in persecution. He's not blessing those whose mission for Jesus ignores a common courtesy and kindness to others. That's not who he's blessing. As I was preparing for this, I came across a story of a house church in Colorado. So every Sunday, they would meet at this pastor's house, this beautiful little suburb in Colorado. And the people would come and they would, they would park on the street, but then they would also park in front of neighbors' driveways, in front of fire hydrants. It was just a disaster in this neighborhood. They would park 
all over the place. And so the city came and they wanted to shut this down. Not the church, the parking situation, okay? And this pastor claimed that his religious freedom was being denied and he was being persecuted. He was claiming that his, he was hiding, sorry, behind his religious freedom so that he did not have to comply with basic city bylaws. And so he wasn't being persecuted for Christ's sake. No, honestly, he was being persecuted for being a bad neighbor. Like, he made himself obnoxious and unloving to his community by his insistence that because he was pastoring a church, he had the right to ignore city bylaws. Like, come on, that's ignoring thou shall love thy neighbor, one of the most basic commandments of us. And that's one of the ways that we as Christians can make ourselves obnoxious to our community around us. And I would strongly contend that that kind of living, that kind of unlovingness to our neighbors is greatly hurting and affecting our ability to make Jesus known to them. Like, especially here. Like, I grew up on the North Shore. I know what it's like out there. People have negative, negative opinions about Christianity and the church. It's tough ground here. And for us to engage our community unlovingly, obnoxiously, is not going to make Christianity any more appealing to anyone. It's going to draw them further away. And so that's not what Jesus is blessing here. And so what are we talking about? How was, how was Jesus persecuted? Why was he persecuted? Well, I mean, if you get into the scriptures, you'll see that Jesus is persecuted at every step he makes. Why? Well, because he was righteous. Because he spoke righteousness. He offered righteousness, the forgiveness of sins. Don't do it this way. You're not going to be saved. Come follow me. Turn from these things. Follow me and I will set you free and give you salvation. He disrupted the status quo and he said he was God. That's why Jesus was persecuted. And interestingly, look how Jesus responds to this. 1 Peter 2. When he was reviled... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He didn't have some, some quick snippet one-liner like, oh, we'll see, we'll see who's right one day. Like, what is that? He didn't do that. That's not graciously loving people around you and drawing them towards the gospel. What's interesting is that if any Christian had precedent to fight for their rights, it was Paul. Paul, who was a Roman citizen, was beaten before he could stand trial, before he was found guilty. That was illegal. And he never fought it. Instead, he just let them unjustly throw him in prison, which he had a foolproof case to stop them from doing so, but he let it happen. And in that, God used the persecution of Paul to bring the prison guard and his entire family to a saving faith. And so we can see then that when we endure persecution for righteousness' sake, for the sake of Jesus, 
in a gracious way that God will often use that to lead others closer to Christ. And so maybe you're asking, like, I understand why Jesus was persecuted, so why are those who follow him persecuted? Well, in John 15, Jesus essentially says, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Daryl Johnson puts it this way. He says, if the world could not tolerate the master, it will not be able to handle the master's servants. If the world cannot tolerate the righteous one, it will not be able to tolerate those who seek to follow him and reflect his righteousness. And today, like at this very moment, there is intense, brutal persecution happening all around the world for Christians. Like I think about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are literally being hunted down right now. And if you look back to the first century, so just a few years after Jesus gave this sermon, a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection, history tells us that the persecution of Christians was brutal. Like you can read about it, just look up Emperor Nero, Emperor Vespasian. They, they legalized government-issued persecution against the Christian church. They used Christians as human torches. They wrapped Christians in animal skins and fed them to lions. And so in this moment, when Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are persecuted, that's the reality that he was talking about for them. These people in front of him were about to experience that. To be a Christian was literally to put your life on the line. And so by this metric, like it's hard for me, it's hard for us, I think, to say that 2021 Canada, our persecution is even comparable. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm not trying to downplay it. Like, yeah, we get uncomfortable. We get our preferences pressed on. Our social dynamics become awkward. Like, I understand. Some of you know some of my story, but I've been called a blanking blank blank right to my face from people who I thought were, were my friends, who then shoved me out of community. So I'm not saying it's not difficult. But what I'm saying is that faithful men and women in the early church would probably see our persecution and be like, it's not so bad. (laughs) But by God's grace, it really is by God's grace, we don't experience that here. But we, we are persecuted. We experience, you know, denial from, from social circles. Maybe denial from a promotion. Like there's stories out there of, of high school and college professors ridiculing and mocking Christian students over their beliefs. But that's mostly the extent of what we experience, isn't it? Like ridicule, mockery. It happens. And in fact, we should expect this to happen. 2 Timothy says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Straight up. But Jesus says this person is blessed. This is a person that I approve of. 
This is a person who is like me, in sync with me. And not only that, in verse 12, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so, like the other Beatitudes, there's a benefit, a reward. And he says it'll be great in heaven. But notice he also says, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What's that about? Well, the prophets, in a sense, were very ordinary people. But in another sense, they were extraordinary. They were essentially God's spokesmen. They spoke infallibly for God. And so in the Old Testament, and even in the days of the apostles, we had people speak on behalf of God. These were very special people. And Jesus is saying here that if you're persecuted and reviled for my sake, then you are regarded as high as them. Like, that is a high level of esteem and favor. Think about that. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, me? Like, what? That's pretty incredible company. And so if I can tie these two together as I bring this thing home here, the common thread between these two Beatitudes, and really all of them, is that they require a great deal of humility and dependence on God. Peacemaking requires humility to take the initiative to address a conflict that might be 99% the other person's fault and only 1% yours. That takes humility. It takes unnatural human strength that only God can give. That's an expression of someone who's like Jesus. And if you've ever been reviled or persecuted against, maybe isolated from a social circle, or denied an opportunity and you graciously responded, that is an expression of humility. And someone who is like Jesus, who to theirs belongs the kingdom and will have a great reward in heaven. And so a few questions here as I close. Who do you need to make peace with? Is it yourself? Someone else? Shalom is waiting for you and we're called to fight for it. And if you do, you will be called a child of God. How do you respond to persecution? Do you want to strike back like the world does? Get them? Or do you respond graciously like Jesus does? Like the person who has the kingdom of heaven working within them? If so, your reward will be great in heaven. Let me pray for us. And so, Father, um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is we just need your help. It's evident that these are characteristics and attributes that are outside of our strength and we can only do it through you, Jesus. 
And so, Father, I just pray that you would intervene into our lives right now. I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who maybe have someone on their heart. Maybe they had someone on their heart initially, as soon as this sermon started, who they need to make peace with. I just pray that you would give them your strength, your courage, your boldness to fight for that peace and to do it in a godly manner which is gentle and gracious and loving. And it's, it's hard out there, Lord. I pray for strength for, for my brothers and sisters in here to endure the persecutions of this world. It's hard being isolated. It's hard being denied. It's hard being ridiculed. I think of Hebrews chapter 2 that um, you endured everything that we endured, Jesus, so that we might be able to run to you to find strength. You know how we feel in those moments of persecution. And so would you just come alongside us and strengthen us and comfort us? We need your help. And so I just pray for anyone in here who can see cracks. Really, if they're able to see those cracks, that is by grace, Lord. And I pray that we would just have the boldness and courage to address them, get to the root of them. So we pray for your strength to be at work within us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.